0: Sip on the go with a Starbucks iced shaken espresso. Our signature roast, shaken with ice, then finished with a splash of milk. Customize it to match your style on the Starbucks app. Make today a good day.
1: Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve Jay, so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today, we interview Paloma Basu and Rob Hatch Miller, the directors of Other Music. Paloma and Rob are the directing producing team that made a film documenting the 2016 closure of one of New York's most treasured institutions, Other Music, a truly unique record store that opened in the East Village in 1995. The film was released in 2020. And it was just released on Blu-ray with bonus features, a commentary track, and a 38-page book. Welcome. Hi, Steve.
2: Hi, thanks for having us.
1: Definitely. We're also joined by Sonia Colorat, an old friend and an avid music doc fan. Welcome, Sonia.
3: Hi, everybody.
1: Hi, Sonia. So I was just talking to y'all beforehand and other music, which I had not been to, but it is considered the quintessential place in New York City if you're into music. Can you tell us how this documentary got started? I have to kind of assume that you were regulars or at least fans of the store. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, um, We were, well, I was a regular and a fan and Rob actually worked at the store uh, for three years.
4: Yeah,
2: and um, 2002
4: to 2005.
2: But yeah, we found out about the closing of the store like everyone else on Twitter. Uh, We saw the announcement and both of us ended up at the store after work that night, because we were so (laughs) sad about it. And when we got there, we saw like a a real scene, like a very cinematic scene unfolding all around us. There were news crews and, you know, people were coming in crying. And, you know, it was just a very charged atmosphere. Mm. And right away, Rob was like, you know, someone needs to capture this because it's going to be gone. And then it's just going to be forgotten. So that's when we started to really think about it as making a film.
3: I love it. I'm so glad you guys made it. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get super deep into the film, I just, I'm so curious about the two of you working together because this is the first time we've had a duo on the show. So I'd love to know about how your filmmaking partnership works and how do you work together as directors?
4: Yeah, so the first feature film that we did together was this film, Soul Johnson, Anyway, The Wind Blows, about a Chicago soul artist who was heavily sampled in hip-hop in the 1990s. And uh, that film I directed, and Paloma and I both produced, along with another producer. So that film, um, I think, was kind of a learning experience for both of us. Yeah. You know, it was my first time directing a feature doc, and it was Paloma's first time working on a feature doc. I'd worked on a few, not as a director, so that one I think, you know, I took the lead on much more, you know, doing the interviews and doing a lot of the filming myself. She did some of the, you know, boom operating for sound and stuff like that on the Still Johnson shoots. The other music film was totally different and it was much more of a real two-director collaboration. Um, partially for logistical reasons, because you know, we had six weeks until the store was closing and neither of us could be there at all times and we wanted to capture as much material as possible and not miss any great moments so we really just took
2: turns well the timing really worked out well because i was working on a movie that was ending my job was ending that week that they announced so rather than taking another job we, we decided very quickly we were going to do it and we just rented a camera and basically I would film from when before they opened to, you know, when Rob was done with work and then he would take the camera from me and continue until way past they closed.
4: And then on the weekends we would both be there together trading off, um, interviewing people, you know, in the back, back room mm-hmm. with uh, me holding the camera and Paloma and I kind of trading off questions. Uh, and then the same thing. Once once the store closed, we continued to interview people. Uh, a lot of the celebrity and musician interviews, like Jason Schwartzman and Matt Berninger from The National, and Dune Martin Day Gore. from TV on the Radio, those were all shot primarily in LA after we'd moved out here. And uh, some of them we were both on set for. Some of them it was just Paloma. Some of them it was only me. Wow. And then once we got into the edit, I was working full time. So Paloma was much more day-to-day sitting with the editor full time whereas I was more watching cuts and giving feedback. Wow.
3: Yeah. I like it. That sounds that sounds that sounds like a good way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a labor of love. And to me that's what the film is too. It's a labor of love. It's it's not really just a movie about the record store closing. It's about the changing music industry. And I mean there's a bunch of docs about vinyl and there's that one about Tower records but this film is like it's much more unique and much more heartwarming than those and i love it and i think you guys did a great job so thank you i mean for me the store was really important to my life in new york And I always felt really cool to be able to say, oh, I know one of the owners. And (laughs) I felt like just knowing him and Chris like gave me some cred. I would have loved to work there too. Um, And to me, like the closing of the store kind of marked a turning point in my life and in the New York that I knew and thrived in. And I left New York a few years later, or not even like, I don't know, like a year after, as did you guys. So I'm glad you guys documented the closure and, To continue on to like how you felt about when you walked in on that day, as you said, and it was like you saw the scene unfolding. Why did you feel like it was really important to document this closure? I think
4: the analogy we've used a thousand times is that, you know, if there was like a CBGB's equivalent of that early 2000s music scene in New York, it it wasn't a venue, it was other music. So you know, there were places like Brownies and Mercury Lounge that were sort of like central to the New York scene in the early 2000s, which people are so nostalgic about nowadays. But none of those venues had as much of a like central role in the scene as other music did. So, you know, and not I mean, beyond that, I feel like other music was important to that scene, but it was also important to tons of other international stuff that's not even related to the like, the bands that are in Lizzie Goodman's book Meet Me in the Bathroom, which I loved. It was an important place for us personally. And we knew it was a historically and musically important place that might be forgotten about if somebody didn't make a film or write a book or do, do something because people's memories are so short. If if there wasn't the CBGB shirt on on everybody and that nobody would care about CBGB's. So like, um, we just wanted to try to cement the legacy of the place as much as we could. And it was very much done out of a labor of love and just feeling of responsibility. We were, I was listening to your interview with the director of a band called death. Mm. um, And he talked about how they just started shooting and didn't even bother looking for money. Same for us. I mean, it was, it wasn't like, let's fundraise and see if we can get somebody to support this. It was just, we have to do this.
1: I'm so glad you did as well. And, and, you know, not, going to the store, I'd learned so much and saw how important different things were. You talk about the vibe, certainly. and we'll get into that and as well as the employees, which I found fascinating. But one of the things I thought was really, really cool is that the owners decided a location was super important. The East Village, you know, like you said, CBGBs and that whole scene was birthed there. But they decide to open it diagonally across the street from Tower Records. And when they talk about that, I was just like, you know, that's some chutzpah, you know. I'm wondering what y'all can tell me about that strategy and, and what how that gives us a glimpse into the owners' minds.
2: Well, I think, you know, I think it was actually really um, a conscious decision on their part. Like they knew that that was an area that was really, you know, focused on the arts at that time. And at the time, all the record stores and, you know, cool stuff, like there were zine stores and all kinds of things in that area, which of course now (laughs) there isn't, it's totally different there now. Um, But yeah, they knew that being across from tower was going to bring them a lot of foot traffic that maybe otherwise they wouldn't have and of course a lot of the people that worked at tower were you know they knew hey like if we don't have something we can send people across the street Mm. it wasn't a competitive thing because they carried different stuff so Mm. you know I think it was they were symbiotic
1: yeah, that's great. I, I know if I had had that, I would have spent all day shopping records, which is something my wife hates. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm glad it didn't.
3: I love all the footage of the in-stores. And was there footage of every single in-store? Like, how did you guys narrow down which ones to include?
4: That's a big reason why the film was able to uh, exist is because someone who is became a producer of the film filmed most of the in-stores. Not all of them, but I would say he filmed... for a number of years
2: like mostly when Josh or Chris remembered to call him (laughs) because there were a few that they didn't call him for like they called him about 20 minutes before Elliot Smith was about to go on and he was in Queens and he's still mad about it like so many years later he still talked about it like three or four times he brought it up
4: yeah and the the guy's name is Derek Yip He filmed a lot of those on various formats, mini DV and things like that. And coincidentally, uh, he works in film as an accountant uh, and Paloma had worked with him a lot and had no idea that he had any connection to other music.
2: I was on the film that I was on. He was the accountant, like when the announcement happened. So it was bizarre. It was like such a coincidence because we went in the story when we started to talk with Josh and Chris about making the film you know, we asked them, like, who did these in-stores? And it was Derek. I was like, (laughs) my mind was totally blown, you know. Um, It all felt like it was meant to be. Yeah, Yeah, so they had a
4: collection of dubbed VHS tapes just sitting in the back of the store for years. There were a few that various employees had taken home over time and just kind of never returned. Uh, And then Derek had master tapes of a lot of the stuff. So we got... Uh, the store's dubs and then his master tapes for anything to get better quality uh, there were a few in stores that he filmed that were lost like animal collective unfortunately
2: yeah
4: the dubs were lost the masters were lost so we didn't have that footage uh, we ended up using uh footage of them performing sort of at the height of their popularity at the pitchfork festival in chicago um, which serves its own purpose because i could think it's sh- you know, literally shows you the store's influence, like spreading far and wide, since those guys worked at the store and their taste and sound was very shaped by the store.
1: I love the fact that the accountant also has this artistic side where he goes in and films into a very, very unique record store. Yeah. You know, it's like, you don't <laughs> see this by day, but.
2: No, and, and you know, if you met him, you would never guess, cause he seems like such a serious, like no nonsense type person um i was completely shocked when i found out it was him
4: it's such a great catalog of of material and um you know because he filmed those things we were able to include moments like um our friend jeff Fierzik, the director of the devil and daniel johnston we were talking to him about the film early on and he said oh god i remember this one in store uh where uh, the band refrigerator went to the door and started singing about tower records outside would be great if somebody had filmed that to put it in the movie and we were like actually I think we have that tape thank you for that suggestion (laughs) yeah uh, it's great yeah
1: Uh, well it's great you know because that's one of the strengths I think of the store is the community and the people and you know you work there and it seems that you know there's a deep musical knowledge and an attitude you know that these people were hired for the store and you really had to be a music encyclopedia right you know, can you talk about the staff at other music? Cause they are all, I loved watching them. They're all great and in different ways, but there is this common thread where they're total music junkies.
4: Yeah. I mean the staff, it was really curated like, a, as much as the records themselves were. And oh. and they almost hired people like the way that a, a program director at a radio station would like pick somebody who was like the techno show and the indie rock show and the hip hop show. Like everybody sort of had their specialty but also had a deep background in things beyond their specialty. And then just by factor of working there, like everyone's knowledge grew every single day, you know? So the guy that was originally just into disco would like get really into some singer songwriter thing that they heard in the store or whatever. Like it was really like a lot of cross-pollination happening. Yeah,
1: Yeah, The reggae guy who went into like uh, pop and post-punk and it was was fascinating, (laughs) it was so cool to watch.
2: Yeah. Um, and then there were people like Dwayne Harriet, who just knows everything. He's like an encyclopedia. And actually, we met uh, through him. So.
3: Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's that's I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of people in the store, like the other end of it, you guys interviewed Jason Schwartzman and Matt Berninger, you know, and there were plenty of musicians and, you know, other New York celebs. That are in the film. Um, I love the James Chance appearance, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to speak to these people? And, you know, was there anybody you were trying to get that wasn't available?
2: Um, we really tried to get Bjork in the film because she was a regular, but we just couldn't reach her. But David
4: Byrne, we really yeah, wanted. Yeah. Uh, another person who shopped in the store frequently, maybe a little shy for you know, documentary interviews. I don't know. But for the most part, you know, we reached out to tons of people and almost everyone responded very positively and, and wanted to do it. There's a few people who just slipped through the cracks for scheduling. Like we never got anybody from the Strokes, but it wasn't because they weren't interested. It was just timing. Timing didn't yeah. work out. Edgar Wright. Edgar yeah. Wright was too busy, but, you know, very supportive of the film after it came out and most people we reached out to, though, just said yes, So people yeah. like um, you know, Matt Berninger again, I just came together so fast. I think from the first day we emailed him, we were interviewing him three days later or something like that. Most people were just loved the store so much they couldn't wait to talk about yeah. it and couldn't stop talking about it. Like Toon day <laughs> from TV on the radio, I think his interview went on for three hours or something like he just had so much to say about the story. It was well
2: same with Matt Berdinger. And I was heavily pregnant at the time and I had to use the restroom like constantly. So it ended up being a super long, I think it was like four hours, you know, with all and, my bathroom breaks.
1: And Benicio del Toro, right. He was fabulous. You know? He, so, he uh... just walked
4: in. Uh, oh, that really? was the first day Paloma was filming by herself.
2: Yeah. It was very scary because <sighs> I was Literally just learning the camera. You know, I, I literally just started filming about 20 minutes before he walked in. And then of course it has to be like the, the most famous person <laughs> walking in. But it was great to catch that moment because it was totally organic. Like it was, you know, it really showed like, hey, like people like that do just come in and they do know the staff and they do trust them and they let them pick the stuff. And um, it was really nice. He was really gracious and he came to the back of the store and sat down, answered some questions, and yeah, it was great. I was super nervous. (laughs) Another one
4: we always love telling the story of is uh, Martin Gore from Depeche Mode. Um, We did a couple of Kickstarters to raise money for the film, and while Paloma was packing up t-shirt orders, she noticed the name Martin Gore on one of the um, mailing labels and said, there's no way this is the Martin Gore, is it? <laughs> so we looked up whether uh, Martin Gore lives in, you know, Standard. central California and sure enough according to the internet he did. So um we talked to the owners of Other Music and said, "You know, did Martin Gore come into the store?" and they were like, "Oh yeah, all the time. A- anytime Depeche Mode was in town, he came in and he befriended this one person on the staff and would put her on the guest list and stuff." Uh so we just emailed him and uh he wrote back right away and said, "Oh yeah, I love Other Music and drive to my house next week if you want." So
1: That
2: was great. Yeah. It was
1: a thrill. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Puloma Basu and Rob Hatch Miller, who are the directors of the documentary Other Music. I have to ask, uh, you know, community is so important and all these things that we've talked about. There is a little bit darker side because 9-11 hugely impacted this area. And one of the customers was a composer, William Basinski and did this piece called The Disintegration Loops that was composed while he watched the towers fall. And other music sold quite a number of these homeburn CDRs within their community, didn't they? I mean, what, what was that like? I mean, it's just so powerful.
4: Yeah, that, I mean, I was working at the store in 2002 when he started selling those on consignment at the store and vividly remember, you know, his his visits every week or two, he'd have to come and restock. And he's just such a big personality that almost doesn't match the the somber tone of the music, you know, he's this long-haired, flamboyant, like, wonderful social butterfly man.
2: Yeah, he's wonderful. He's
4: so great. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he brought those CDs in and it's this sort of elegiac, like, very dark, pensive tape loop music that actually existed prior to 9 but I think 9-11 sort of contextualized it for him. Um, it kind of gave it some deeper meaning that he didn't realize was there. And and he had recently made these tape loops uh, right before 9-11 and then he'd listened to them on 9-11 and just the connection was made. And and it's gone on to become like a very considered a very important piece of modern classical music uh, of the last 20 years. So we would put it on in the store and though it was like very dark, somber music, people just really connected with it and, you know, You put it on, put it on the now playing sign. You know, it was like that scene in High Fidelity with I can sell five copies of the beta band. 10, 15, 20 people at a time would buy these disintegration loop CDs. So we knew it was special. We knew that was somebody that had to be interviewed for the film. It it really um, helped us that I and Paloma both knew so much about the store and its history, given that there was such a limited amount of time to... um, film in the store you know if if somebody else had come in with six weeks and had to research it and find out okay who are the important artists who are the ex-staff members I don't think anybody who hadn't worked at the store would have been able to do that
2: and also I think you know record store people can be you know shy and they knew that we had good intentions and so they forgot we were there really quickly which was a great thing I could just tuck myself into a corner and film and they just would act like they normally would so it was perfect
1: Cinema That's the best scenario. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
3: so along with the the theme of community that steve mentioned but on the opposite end is you know the joyous closing with the second line parade and the concert that night I wish that every place I knew that closed and every person that I knew that moves onto another plane would have a send off like that. I mean, it was really, you know, it's, it was so sad, but it ended on this note of joy in a way. Can you talk about those two moments in relation to the film? I imagine that when you began filming these event were these events in place at that point or?
2: No, they were yeah. still figuring it out. They were still like, cause you know, I think they were so overwhelmed in some ways that the store was closing. They were also really overwhelmed with the response from everybody. Uh, They didn't realize how much it was gonna impact their community. So I think at the beginning, Josh and Chris were a little bit reticent about doing a big send off. They didn't wanna seem like, oh, we're taking ourselves so seriously and we think we're so important. But, you know, people like Don and Lydia, their wives were like, you have to do something. And then eventually they, you know, over the course of those six weeks, the concert came together pretty quickly and pretty much anyone Josh asked to play the show said yes right away. So um, they went from thinking they would get maybe five people to like everyone they asked said yes. So it was really special.
4: Yeah, and uh, in terms of the film, you know, we're lucky that they ended up doing that because I don't think just the store breaking everything down and throwing it in the trash and walking out would have been a gigantic bummer.
2: Yeah, and we needed that. We needed that joy to to balance that really dark like ending of the store being broken down. and
4: In the edit, we initially, we had everything in chronological order at the end of the film, which was basically the parade and then the concert. And then they break everything down and throw it in the trash. and it was horrifying. I mean, it was just (laughs) so depressing. So what we ended up doing is just switching the order. So they break the store down and then you see the parade and it ends with this celebratory concert sort of intercut with them walking out of the store the last time. So we thought that it offered a little bit more hope because we weren't trying to make a film that's saying like music is dead or streaming is horrible. You know, We were just trying to make a film that again, sort of celebrated the legacy of this place and how important it was we weren't trying to make some statement about mp3s are bad or ipods are bad or spotify is bad or only vinyl is good
2: yeah Uh, we didn't want to do that like we were really trying really hard to not be too backward looking to not make it seem like we were making some grand statement about how like Hey, it used to be good in my day, and now everything's terrible. <laughs> and, and to
4: their credit, Josh and Chris, the owners of the store, were exactly on our wavelength with that. You know, they weren't lamenting streaming killing their store. They were just contending with the fact that things had changed, and there wasn't a there wasn't a role for like another music type store in Manhattan or New York or really anywhere at this point. You know, record stores now serve a very much more specific limited function they're not places where you discover the music first yeah not for most people i'm sure there's occasions where you learn about something at a record store but most people i think hear something online first and then go buy the physical product or yeah or maybe it's a used record store where you're digging and finding something but the role of a store that sort of sells like a high volume of you know the only being the only place you can get the bell and sebastian import cd when it first came out that just doesn't exist anymore and doesn't need to and they're fine with that you know they just know times have changed and the era of other music was over sadly
1: well to me what came across so loud and clear was just there's a a love of music not the delivery method but people yeah music so congratulations on that
3: i love the way that you guys involved record stores in the distribution of the film that felt like important to me and can you explain how that process worked it seemed super unique
2: That was, um, you know, it it kind of, it wasn't something we had planned. Basically the pandemic happened. And basically in two weeks after the whole country was locking down, we were supposed to have a theatrical release of the film. So the film was supposed to play in in lots and lots of cities all over the country and the world, but that's, you know, obviously was not gonna happen. And to our distributors credit, you know, he realized very quickly that, okay, well, this isn't gonna happen. So we have to like pivot and figure out a different way to do it. And he had this good idea of of doing a virtual theater release and partnering with record stores so that they could keep half of the money of the ticket price. And for us, it was, we just loved that idea so much right away because we were so worried about everybody and how they were gonna sustain themselves during this time, it was really great. It was a way to promote the stores and the film and-
4: And raise a little bit of money for the a, stores. I mean, some of which, yeah. you know, I know there's at least a couple of stores in New York that were able to pay their their rent for a month or two early in the pandemic because of the film. So that meant a lot to us. Yeah, and it it the way it happened really was just, we reached out to Record Store Day and Carrie at Record Store Day helped out a lot with linking us with stores. Um, Josh from Other Music also works for Secretly Canadian Distribution now. So he has a network of stores that their distribution works with. So between Record Store Day and Secretly, we were just able to connect really quickly with a lot of these stores and, and most of them wanted to participate, so.
2: Well then, and then also like once we started doing it, stores from around the country and the world started reaching out and saying, can we be a part of this? So that was really nice. It was it was a chance for everyone to try and promote themselves. And know? I
4: think the film really connected with people in that time, because, um, as you said, Sonia, um, you know, we wish everybody in every place got the kind of send off that other music did as the pandemic was happening and people were dying and not getting funerals and stores were closing and not ever having a last real day in business. I think the, the film took on a different meaning and uh, and people watched it and I think had a really emotional connection to it because of that.
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of that connection and, and money, um, you you mentioned that you just kind of started filming this, right? Right from the outset. But, you know, I learned uh, that, you know, you had a really successful Kickstarter campaign. And I just found that so fascinating and such kind of a, a perfect metaphor for the whole community process, you know, that that people just loved this movie and responded by helping fund it.
4: Yeah, so you know, crowdfunding I think is a really necessary thing for music documentaries, all all documentaries, but specifically music documentaries because there's not a lot of avenues for funding. I mean, there, there's a couple ways you can get a doc funded, uh, music doc, right? You can you can be a European filmmaker. There's there's <laughs> access to uh, public funding if you're from Europe or Canada or, or Canada, some yeah. other places that have more. Um, uh, resources in the U.S. Um, you can do, you know, sort of the Summer of Soul model where it's like that film got made because a celebrity directed it. I mean, let, let's be honest. It's great. And Questlove did an amazing job and the film is awesome. But if it wasn't him directing that, uh, I don't know how who would have paid for it. Yeah. Or like, you know, an Edgar Wright, like
2: making a Sparks documentary, like
4: who would have paid for a Sparks documentary made by some you know small documentary filmmaker you know nobody (laughs) so if you're if you're just a normal person making a music film i think you have to connect directly with the the fans of of whatever the subject is so we've done that a few times now and i've even we've even sort of often finding ourselves on zoom calls giving advice to other filmmakers doing that now like the there's a doc about the embarrassment from wichita kansas punk band Uh, We gave them a lot of advice on their Kickstarter campaign just because we like the band and the people that are making it.
2: This this Mexican guy reached out to us and he's making a a film about techno in Mexico. And, you know, we're just like, we're finding ourselves being like some kind of weird Kickstarter campaign experts. I wish we could monetize that, but (laughs) the whole point is, you know... The whole point is that they're trying to raise money for their art, so.
1: Right. Well, you monetize it by your credibility
2: though.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I so,
4: I mean, I, I feel like we didn't give you a real complete answer on that, but uh, so. it's, yeah, it's just sort of a necessity, you know? It's the only way you can get a film like this paid for. and And, you know, we made it very cheaply. It's like, we've never made any money off of it. When you do a doc like this, the editor is the person that has to be paid the most because they have to sit with it for weeks and months. Other than that, you know, you pay for music licensing and get favors on sound mix and things like that. There's not a lot of cost, you know, we shot the film ourselves, we recorded sound ourselves, the people, no one was paid to appear in it. So yeah, we just try to keep costs low and and find, you know, individuals that will
3: help support
4: the project.
1: And you did. And that's, that's impressive. I mean, that that's, like I said, a great metaphor for the whole project, I think.
3: And, you know, you guys, I feel like you're really keeping the vibes of the store alive. You're running, you know, this this Twitter for the doc, which is also like, you know, sharing projects that people that used to work at the store are doing. And, you know, I think you, you're still obviously getting eyes on your film from that. But I feel like you've maintained this little community through the film. How has that been for you guys? is that sort of what's been, how how you feel like the continued evolvement of the film has happened. I mean, the Blu-ray just came out, so this has been like a long, a long game.
4: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think uh, Paloma mentioned our distributor earlier, Factory 25. Um, A lot of credit goes to them for, you know, they're a tiny company and a lot of bigger companies passed on the film, but they've ended up really um, giving the film a long life by, pushing it out on multiple formats. You know, we had a Record Store Day physical vinyl release with a DVD packaged inside, and this Blu-ray just came out. So over time, they've really gotten a lot of new formats and new eyes on the film. So with social media, I think, you know, we we try to keep the accounts active just to get new people watching the film primarily. I love that uh, keeping the community alive is sort of a byproduct of that, but the reasons for doing it are selfish I think it's just there's a lot of people that still haven't discovered the movie and you know if we keep posting about things that are other music related and and not being overly promotional like click this link and buy our movie all the time uh, then you grow an audience slowly over time and now my set my twitter on my phone is just full of all of these music doc projects I've gotten involved with that I'm constantly flipping between you know all the different accounts right now it's (laughs) elephant six documentary other music documentary Syl johnson documentary Mm. and half my day is just like looking for (laughs) content to share on those accounts and build awareness and audiences for those
3: films director and social media expert (laughs) and kickstarter expert
1: Well, I, I will have to say on a personal level, one of the things, and for all of our listeners out there, if you haven't watched it, go watch it now, uh, and we'll let you tell them where they can watch it. But, you know, I was watching this, I really felt I was in the store at times, and there's this one moment where this, they're playing a record in the store and there's shoppers, and this woman goes, what, what is that? What are you playing? And it caught my ear at the exact same time. I was so happy that they brought the cover down and I'm jotting it down. And so uh, I have now discovered My Intention is War, Trinidad Calypso from 1928 to 48, which I love. And I went and found that on Spotify. And I'm a big West Indies music fan, never heard this. And um, now I know. So, you know, congrats and, you know, thank you for all of that, you know. And I think that's part of, both other music and your films, you know, kind of specialness.
2: Well, we really wanted to capture that, like, because it happened all the time. Like someone would hear something in the store and and then ask what it was and buy it. Mm. So we were just waiting for a moment where we could catch it on camera. And thankfully it happened. So.
4: We probably caught multiples. And that was just the one that, that was... our editor picked. And credit to him because he did an amazing job, Greg King, a musician turned film editor. He was in a band called Rachel's. He is fantastic, and we were really struggling, I think, initially with making the film not just be interview heavy. I think the early cuts of the film were just like interview, 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 maybe a shot of somebody shopping. And we really wanted the film to spend a lot of time with the observational cinema verite footage and, like you said, put you in the store, make you feel like you've been there before by the time you finished it. We filmed the material necessary for that, but it took a special and very talented editor to to make that work.
2: I mean, he he watched every second of how many hours of us being in the store for six weeks. We were there all day for six weeks. So um, he watched every second of that. And really, I mean, he's amazing.
3: I mean, that's sort of like this moment that you guys mentioned is is this magical thing that happens in a record store, right? When somebody plays something and then you go buy it. And so these are connections that times have changed and we're not finding out really about new music by walking into a record store. Do you think that that's completely gone? And like, what do you think people have replaced that with?
2: I don't, okay. I don't think it's completely gone. I think that, you know, one interesting thing we saw a lot while we were filming was like very, very young kids coming into the store and they already knew all the stuff that they wanted to get. Like they had a list, like there was one kid who bought like every can record they had. And I was just thinking, oh my God, at their age, I, I, first of all, it was impossible to find all that stuff. And then second of all, it was like, you, you didn't even get the knowledge that easily. You had to like really work on it. So I think that they come in knowing what they want but then of course if if you're in a place like other music somebody who works there will be like oh you're into this well what about this or what about that and and sometimes they would go for it and so there there is still that kind of thing happening you know when people are together in person um and they're passionate about something then they share their love for something it still happens when humans get together
4: right i was gonna say i think it's just rarer now Mm -hmm. you know it's it's first of all, you have to be somebody that goes and traps in record stores yeah. and fairly often, I think for that to even happen. So if you pop into Amoeba once every two months to buy something specific, you're probably not going to hear something on their stereo and
2: mm-hmm.
4: even be able to find where the now playing display is. What's <sighs> replaced that, I don't know, is it, you know, digital word of mouth. I mean, I feel like even pitchfork doesn't have the influence that it had in terms of like music discovery. Probably a lot of people find out about stuff through Spotify playlists. Yeah. Um I personally don't, you know, I know I discover music through you know b- following bands I like on social media and seeing what like what they post on their Instagram mm-hmm. stories or you know there's some Facebook groups like I'm sure you participate Sonia in this um uh annual music poll that happens on Facebook every year now this it
2: was the village village
4: fake village voice pass and drop group uh (laughs) all these music people post their top tens and I've
2: we look at those lists we look
4: we find stuff that we missed you know there's people I've Um, friends on Facebook who often post new music that they like and you find out about I don't know this band Flory that's on 12XU Gerard Cosloy's label this very cool like country-ish record that came out last year that was not on my radar at all until I saw somebody post about it on Facebook this year
2: we asked Ezra Koenig the same question when we were interviewing him and he was like well the real geeks seem to find out a lot about music from YouTube video like you know their their search on YouTube and then they go in the comments and they you know if you go in the comments like the real nerds are like (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God, that just seems too time consuming. Like,
1: Definitely. It's funny, real quick, my uh, oldest daughter, uh, you're speaking of uh, Spotify playlists. And, you know, I worked in the music business all my life, and they're always exposed to music. And she did a playlist and exposed all of her friends to Tammy Wynette's, you ain't woman enough to take my man. So, you know, it does happen. And it, it is about, you know, kind of the curiosity factor and where you absorb things, you know, and if it's people you trust, usually there's. A better absorption rate. I don't know if that sounds too sciencey, <laughs> uh, and I'm not a scientist, but you know, it's it's definitely there. The YouTube thing's kind of weird because I always object to, to music videos anyway. I would rather think of what this the music is about than have a storyline. Like, here's the film of the song, you know, because there's so many that, you know, like Bob Dylan. Like, what do you think that song's about? And you get all these different answers, you know. So, uh, Spotify, you know,
4: you know, uh, Jason Schwartzman says in our film to carry the spirit of other music you you know if you find something that you love you should tell people about it and i think that's like that's what you just said steve and that's i think what we've tried to do in our personal lives and on our social media for the film and stuff is just celebrate things that that you love and and spread the word and
2: yeah if you go see
4: a band that you love like post about it and maybe somebody will listen to their album and and love it too
2: but you know that applies to not just music it really does apply to like films and mm-hmm. books or any kind of art just last night we were flipping through on netflix to try and find something to watch and i, I was telling rob like this is never how you find something you know you find something because someone told you it was good right. and then you go and search for that thing specifically
1: well i had heard about your documentary and sonia said you should go watch that and then that's how this whole thing evolved and, and i said oh my god that's the best movie i've ever seen and so we're we're super happy to have you on and Can you tell people, our listeners, where they can find this?
4: Yeah. So, right now, you can stream it for free on Canopy, which is a great platform that is free with a public library card or a university ID or library card. They have tons of great films, and it's just such a great resource. We've really fallen in love with Canopy via this, uh, them having the film on their platform. Um, And then, of course, it's on, you know, you can rent it for three bucks or whatever on iTunes, Amazon all those platforms, Uh, and now it's also on Blu-ray. So you can visit your local video rental store if you have one and they might have it on their shelf or you can buy a copy of the Blu-ray.
3: I would love to know what you guys are up to now. I know you have another very cool music doc that you've mentioned a couple of times, the Syl Johnson film, Anyway, The Wind Blows. So can you talk a bit about that? And also if you guys are working on another film, we'd love to know.
4: (laughs) We're not currently working on another film. Yeah, we, we don't really know what our next project is.
2: Yeah, we've been brainstorming and something will happen. We're just kind of waiting for the right thing. We have some ideas. We'll, let's see what happens.
4: Yeah, I am, I am executive producing a doc about the Elephant Six Collective, which is Neutral Milk mm-hmm. Hotel, Apples and Stereo, Olivia Terma Control, that is edited by Greg King, who edited other music. That's a film that's been long gestating and I've been helping them yeah, get it ready for an eventual release at some point
2: it's in such the a great TV. it's such a great film and we watched it to give notes to Greg like before other music came out years ago at this point but for some reason or the other the film has never been put out there and Rob has kind of injected himself into the whole thing and he's been like I'm gonna help you guys get this out because it's just too good for it to not be seen I'm excited for that to come out
1: and the Syl Johnson movie cuz i'm a huge fan of his and i want to watch that and perhaps have you guys back but where can people see that
2: yeah so the
4: Syl Johnson movie uh is a film that we showed for the first time in 2015 and 2016 at festivals and never found a distributor had some very expensive licensing issues like a in particular the Al Green song take me to the river was very costly so over the years we've just been paying down all the costs ourselves and um you know, finally, just toward the end of last year, as we were learning SIL's health was declining, we were getting near, uh, you know, paying off everything so that we could release the film without being sued by, you know, one of these major record labels. SIL died in February, and subsequently, we've gotten the film up on iTunes, for Amazon for rent, uh, Google Play, and the, just the standard uh, transactional video on-demand sort uh, services as they're called, we're working on getting it somewhere streaming for free later in the year. But for now, it's, it's a movie that you have to pay a couple bucks to rent, which sadly, no one wants to do that anymore. It's If it's not on a streaming platform that is free or you're subscribed to, no one will watch anything. But some people are watching the movie and discovering it. It's a film we're very proud of. And it's uh, I think you'll like it a lot, Steve. It's a very warts and all portrayal of a complicated a uh, fascinating character of who's lived a long life over many genres of music, and it's a it's a fun, uplifting film with great yeah. music. Uh, much like other music, there's a lot to discover yeah. musically in that film.
2: And Sill is just such a hilarious person. He was such a such a character. You know, we we're really happy that we were able to show him as he was. You know, when we first showed it in Chicago, the premiere was at Chicago International Film Festival. Um, A bunch of his friends and family came out to the screening. Sill was supposed to come, but he didn't show up. (laughs) Um, uh, But his friends and family, after the screening, they came up to us and they were like, oh my God, we can't believe you showed Sill like as his crazy self. Like, you know, they thought that it was going to be like some, you know tough piece that, where we yeah where we made him seem like less colorful than he was you know
4: yeah and I think I should note probably most people listening have no idea who Sel Johnson is so he was he was uh somebody who should have been a superstar many times over started out as a blues sideman in Chicago in the 50s playing with J- Jimmy Reed and Junior Wells and all, all kinds of you know huge blues artists as a guitar player and then uh in the 60s he was a uh, phenomenon on the local Chicago soul scene, put out tons of great 45s, then was on high records with Al Green in the 1970s and was sort of overshadowed by Al Green, and then had this huge career revival starting in the 1990s with people like Wu-Tang Clan sampling him, and basically any hip hop artist you name has sampled Sil Johnson. He made a name for himself suing them, uh, sometimes with cause, sometimes just kind of as a troll, And, uh, and then he had his music released by Numero group. One of their biggest early releases was their box set of Syl Johnson's early recordings. And, uh, you know, he was nominated for a Grammy at age 80 because of the Numero group. So the the film follows his whole life from, you know, being a blues artist to suing rappers and having this late career comeback opening for people like Wilco and getting a Grammy nomination. Well, Well, I'm going to pay to
3: watch it.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. So we'll both watch it. Maybe we can have you back to talk about that. Because I I discovered him through a high records uh, compilation. And it's probably my favorite cut on that little comp. And I just went deeper. And uh, a lot of the stuff you said, I didn't know. So I'm very excited. I'm happily will pay for that. So maybe we can have you back. I'd like to thank you both, Paloma and Rob the directors of other music which is a fabulous documentary and of course sonia i always enjoy having you on and uh, your questions uh add greatly to the show so thank you guys very much
4: thank you for having us yeah, it's a
2: pleasure really appreciate you having us on and it's great meeting you
1: all music movies is part of the all music podcast series and a proud member of the pantheon podcast network